0: Hello, I'm Zev Neuwirth and welcome to Creating a New Healthcare, a podcast series for healthcare leaders who are interested in fresh perspectives, new ideas, and bold solutions on how to advance the creation of a customer-oriented, value-based, and humanistic system of health. The views expressed on this podcast are solely my own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization. Folks, on Friday, March 27th, 2020, I launched a limited podcast series addressing how the COVID 19 pandemic is reframing healthcare in the US. In this limited series, I've been reaching out to interview bold, courageous healthcare leaders, entrepreneurs, and practitioners, asking two questions. First, how is the COVID 19 pandemic immediately changing the way we're delivering healthcare? And how will COVID 19 reframe American healthcare for years to come? In order to share the remarkable insights from these timely interviews, we've been releasing these episodes as quickly as possible. In the past eight weeks, we've actually posted 18 episodes, including this one. That's on average one podcast every three days. Now, today's dialogue will be the final interview in this limited podcast series, and we're gonna do something a bit different here. I'd like to share with you some of the learnings and lessons from the past few weeks, uh, takeaways I've gleaned from these insightful dialogues and the impact I hope it will make on American healthcare. And so I am uh, truly excited to have Chitra Raghavan join me today to take over the mic and actually conduct the interview. Uh, Chitra is no stranger to the interviewer role. She is the host of a weekly podcast called When It Mattered, in which she interviews leaders about how adversity has shaped how they live, work, and lead. She is an unusually skilled host in that she brings deep experience as a nationally recognized journalist in television, radio, and print, including at National Public Radio and US News and World Report. She is also the founder and CEO of Good Story, a strategic advisory firm helping companies with strategic growth and positioning using brand architecture, narrative, and storytelling. Shidra, welcome to this podcast. I want to thank you so much, and I'm so honored to have you conducting this interview. The mic is yours.
1: Seb, thank you very much. I am so honored to be uh, invited to have this role here, and having listened to your series and read your book, Reframing Healthcare, I, I'm so impressed both by the breadth and depth of this this journey that you've undertaken, tell me um, what led you to do this uh, special edition series?
0: Well, uh, thank you for that question. When the COVID-19 pandemic was beginning to emerge and uh, the WHO declared it as a pandemic, and even in the time leading up to that, it just struck me that this was a, a rare moment in history an inflection point in in healthcare for sure, and um, I began to see the the pandemic as really uh, in a different way. You know, everyone was thankfully focused on the immediate and dealing with some of the immediate issues. My mind went right to the notion that this was actually a catalyst that this was going to change healthcare immediately and for years to come. And I wanted to capture that. I wanted to capture that in the moment it was happening Uh, while people were experiencing it, we were learning so much so quickly. And it it was really, you know, you know, it was almost like a natural reorientation, a natural reframe. And of course, in no way shape or form would I or anyone else want to have this be the uh, teaching of choice, but this is what was handed to us. And so, uh, you know, that famous phrase, uh, never waste a crisis. Well, I saw that in spades and I thought this is going to be the accelerant for reframing healthcare, both in our country and across the globe. And so I began to reach out to uh, experts and, and leaders across the country and entrepreneurs and asking them for how the situation was reframing their own thinking.
1: You know, in a way, no one was better prepared to uh, have these conversations than you were because even before COVID-19 happened, you know, you had spent almost five years thinking about how to reframe the healthcare system and just listening to the tone of the series and then the tone of the book even, it's a real passion project. You know, you brought all your energy and conviction to it. And so in addition to this limited edition series, you had done hundreds of hours, literally hundreds of hours for your overall, the bigger podcast, uh, Creating a New Healthcare, and your book, Reframing Healthcare. So give us some context as to how you began to look at it, the factors that triggered this passionate journey deep into the healthcare system.
0: Yeah, it has been a journey. And I think for the entirety of my career, I've been in what they call frustrated awe. I've been absolutely in awe of the healthcare system uh, and just so in awe of the people in it. I, I mean, I even though I work amongst physicians, I'm married to a physician, my brother's a physician, uh, I have friends who are physicians and nurses and PAs and techs, and I still, I, I worship them. I absolutely do. I, I just think the work is the best work that anyone could be involved in, helping other people, healing other people. And of course, the science and technology, it's just awesome. And it's awe inspiring. And at the same time, I've been really frustrated with the system itself. Fundamentally, I felt the system had uh, some flaws. I'm not the first person to say that, nor the last. And yet, that's been the path I've been on, which has been this sort of path of frustrated awe, really thinking about how do we begin to do things differently? And to that end, you know, I've been involved in process improvement and quality improvement and care redesign and innovation. And and operations and all those sorts of things, really in the belly of the beast, so to speak, for decades. And um, about five or six years ago, a couple of things happened to me personally and professionally, one of which was that um, I lost my mother to, uh, she was hospitalized for a routine surgery. In fact, the most common surgery, uh, surgical procedure in the country, or one of the most common, the hip replacement, uh, relatively healthy and she died of an avoidable cause. And uh, despite the fact that I was involved, uh, my brother, who's a physician, was involved, that my sister, who does care redesign at Kaiser, was involved, we couldn't save her. And that really threw me back on my heels and, and made me really think about what we were doing and how we were doing it. And you know, year after year, decade after decade, so many people working to do the right thing, to improve healthcare, to hold the system together. And I just started to think that we have to stop this we have to do something different we have to reorient we have to reframe and so i began to think about that um a couple of other things happened uh, one of my best friends a physician who actually i worked with uh, he was actually my physician as well uh, committed suicide and you know and again that just slapped me in the face and i thought my god this is you know this system is not good for doctors and nurses and and, and it's not good for patients and so So I began to really rethink, and I began to realize that um, we couldn't just continue doing what we were doing in terms of improving and innovating. We had to really completely reframe the system, and I began to to research that. I began to talk to people who were actually reframing healthcare, uh, entrepreneurs and CEOs and leaders and innovators and people who were successfully doing it and uh, began to essentially distill their roadmap and that's what i wrote about in the book the reframe roadmap i've been in some sense i've been on this journey for probably 30 years um, more intensely in the last uh five or six years
1: yeah intense is a really great way to frame it you know you there's a sense of urgency in in these conversations and in the words that you're writing that, that they just really pop off the page and you can hear it in the air. And so, you know, you had this sense of urgency, and then COVID-19 happened. And, you you know, it's kind of funny to say this, but you almost looked like the town crier. You know, you've been going around saying, "Good, you know, bad things are going to happen. Let's fix this. And, and then it did happen. What were your first thoughts as you started to see COVID-19 unfold, and you came to it with all of this perspective? What was that like?
0: I have to admit that it was actually a number of, Friends and colleagues that were either writing to me or calling me and saying, you know, there's. In fact, I'll tell you a story. I share this with you. I use the Speakers Bureau to help me schedule talks. And the colleague I have at the Speakers Bureau called me up one day. Uh, this was early, early on, and he said, "Listen, you know, all the other speakers we have—they're rewriting their talks based on this COVID nineteen. What's happening?" He said, "But, but you don't have to rewrite your talk. Your your entire thesis." Is really outlining what we needed to do before COVID 19 and absolutely what we need to do now in this COVID 19 era and then the post COVID 19 era. We need to reframe healthcare. And it was just so startling to hear him say that to me. And I had a number of other people write to me uh, and say something similar. And so that really, to be honest with you, that's really what got me thinking that I needed to jump on this and really start to think about it in the context of COVID 19, that it wasn't that again, COVID-19 was the cause, it really is a, it may be an accelerant, um, as others have said, and I really saw it as a catalyst. In fact, I, I label it right now, it's the COVID-19 catalyst is what it is. But you know, to your point, I, I just want to share this with you. In chapter 10 of the book I wrote, I actually start out with this notion that most people will tell you that change in healthcare. if you talk to people three, four, five months ago, and in the past few years, and you talked about Innovation and transformation and reframing, most people wouldn't disagree. But the response you would get is that um, we have time. That things happen in healthcare, but they happen very slowly. Changes that have been published, you know, the standard stat we hear about and actually has been written about is that once something is proven to be evidence based, it could take fifteen to twenty years before it's actually instituted broadly. So that's how slow innovation and change, even if it's proven, takes and. In my book, in chapter 10, I said, you know, I have this feeling that's been true in the past, but I actually think that's not going to be true in the future. I actually think that the disruptions will come much faster and much bigger than we've observed in the past few decades. And so I've had a sense of urgency for many, many years as you really picked up the emotionality around it. You know, I just think that the the current system is fundamentally flawed and each and every day uh, people are suffering, people are dying because of the system and that's something i can't live with easily and that's why i have such a a sense of urgency around reframing healthcare
1: so having had all of these conversations over the last few months what have been uh, the biggest takeaways from the series that you've been doing these conversations you've been having
0: well what's really interesting is even in speaking to folks who come from very very different backgrounds in healthcare and have different perspectives there have been a number of common themes that have really been repeated over and over again and and it could be uh, you know quite honestly that uh, you know I might elicit some of this and so I'm hearing some of the same themes but I've been surprised even when I've just asked open ended questions how common these themes are so the first is that um the notion that what covid-19 has done is really exposed the vulnerabilities and the flaws in our healthcare system and really accelerated the need for change, the sense of urgency around us. You know, it's that um, quote or that notion from Warren Buffett that, you know, when the tide goes out, you see the muck, right? You see the rocks. And I think that's what, in some sense, this has done. For me, it's just shown a light that is so glaringly obvious that you almost need to wear sunglasses. It's just so bright in terms of the flaws and I'll just list a few, and you know we could dive into which, whichever ones you'd like to. The first is our uh, system for payment, the fee for service system. This, you know, again is the predominant system. Most of payment is transactional; it's done on what you bill for. So if you do something, you get paid for it in healthcare. And this fee for service system has become the biggest liability, the biggest vulnerability, the biggest fragility in our healthcare system. All these practices that are literally going out of business because they haven't been able to see patients because they get paid piecemeal, right? They get paid for pieces of work. Even the large systems, it's actually shocking to me that uh, centers like the Mayo Clinic, they're posting hundreds of millions of dollars of losses in one month. Uh, I just read that Sutter... Which is an amazing system on the west coast in California, has lost one billion dollars in the first quarter of this year, one billion dollars net revenue losses. Uh, the American Hospital Association says that hospitals in the u s are losing at least fifty billion dollars a month this year collectively. I suspect that number is an underestimate, but you know it just it shows i think it exposes the vulnerability, and on the counter side to that. What we're seeing is that practices, and this was a sort of another theme that emerged, a counter theme, that practices that were being paid in a capitated system, that is, they were being paid per member per month, they're actually doing well, right? They were able to switch over to virtual care quite easily. There are actually, some of them are even thriving. I could give you examples of that. But I, I think the first is that. The second is so obvious. Again, you, you have to wear sunglasses, not to be blinded by how obvious this is our lack of a a robust public health system and pandemic preparedness. I mean, we were caught flat-footed. Even now, months into it, we do not have a system of uh, identifying patients or identifying individuals with COVID-19, of isolating them, of doing contact tracing. It's just incomprehensible that a country like ours with a healthcare system, the amount of money we spend, that we didn't have this in place and we still don't have it in place, and so I think that's another vulnerability of fragility. I think the, another one, again, that is so shocking and so sad is the disparities in care. This was one of the first set of statistics that uh, really shocked me in, in this pandemic, the rate of death. So for instance, across the country, if you looked at the percentage of people who were dying from COVID-19, it was uh, disproportionately people of color. And so, for instance, in some communities, and some cities where you might have 25% of the population was African-American, yet 50 or 60% of the deaths were from African-Americans. And so that glaring uh, disparity in care. And again, we could dive into the reasons, and there are many, and it's a complex situation uh, and multifactorial, but it is what it is, right? We were also seeing early on disproportionately fewer percentages of people of color were being tested. Right, And so uh, that's something, again, early on in this pandemic, we were noticing, and I think in part that's been corrected or at least addressed, but still. So that is another vulnerability. I think a fourth is the um, what's been exposed is just the prevalence uh, and the seriousness of chronic disease in our country. We know, and again, COVID-19, what we know is that people who have a chronic medical condition like diabetes or hypertension or even obesity, any uh, lung problems, cancer, immune issues, people who have those conditions are at far, far greater risk of ending up in a hospital or on a ventilator or dying from COVID-19. If you look at the stats, 95% of people in the hospital with COVID-19 have at least one chronic medical condition. Nearly 90% of people in the hospital actually have two or more chronic conditions. And so it actually puts people at risk and the sad part is, uh, and this is what's been exposed, is that 50% of Americans, one out of every two Americans, has uh, adults, has a chronic medical condition. If you look at uh, people who are over 65 in the Medicare age range, 50% have two or more chronic conditions. And so, again, you know, as a country, this is something we should not be proud of. This is something, a, a big vulnerability and a problem. And quite honestly, we're not doing a good job of hypertension or diabetes is poorly controlled. We need to do a much, much better job with that. And uh, you know, I think that there are some other vulnerabilities that have been pointed out as well. The fact that we had the technology to do virtual care, we've had it for years, and yet we've not deployed it uh, in large part because of the uh, payment model that wasn't paying for it. uh, Some of the restrictions around that. And so I think those are some of the big, vulnerabilities and some of the big fragilities in our system that were really exposed and I would say magnified and exacerbated by the COVID pandemic. The point is that the COVID pandemic was not the cause. It was merely a catalyst, if you will, and really an accelerant and an exacerbant and really just, really just exposed it.
1: That's a great summary. Uh, going back to a couple of the the points that you made, uh, the the huge losses that these hospitals and healthcare systems are undergoing, is that because patients who would normally come for all kinds of treatments, surgery, care aren't coming? I mean, what are the factors? That's an astonishing figure you you cited a uh, billion dollars in. Is that a quarter? Did you say?
0: Yeah, in the first quarter, yeah, it's... And again, I think some of the other hospitals, the number of 200 to $400 million a month, a month loss in, you know, uh, it's the Mayo Clinic is actually more than that. Johns Hopkins is in the $300 million a month loss. And so to your point, yes, you know, these hospital systems and healthcare systems make money when people come into the offices, they come into the practices, they're getting procedures done, and ancillary services like imaging studies and testing. And that's how the money is made. That's where the, the revenue comes from. It's, it's Again, it's a transactional, it's fee-for-service, it's procedure-based. And so when COVID hit and people were not able to do that uh, for safety reasons, it became unsafe you saw utilization decrease by anywhere between 60 to 80%. So literally you saw the hospitals being emptied out to the tune of 80% or more. That's the the reason why and again you know you can sort of scratch your head and say so what? And the so what is that well maybe we need to start to think about payment in a very very different way. Maybe we should pay for outcomes, maybe we should pay for populations. So you know for sure this whole notion of capitated I mean, the payers themselves get paid. They've been doing well, by the way. So if you look at the insurance companies, you have not heard losses from the insurance company. If anything, and I don't have these numbers at hand, but the insurance companies have done exceedingly well in this first quarter because utilization and costs are down. And so they're obviously, uh, they're reaping the savings, right? And so, and again, this COVID-19 pandemic is not the type of situation we're going to see in the long run or even in the near future. But the point being that if we had a um, an alternative payment model that was based on taking care of populations of patients and you got paid to do the entire care, the so-called capitated payment, payment that is based on value, is based on outcomes of care, I think that diversification of payment of revenue streams would have made the healthcare system uh, much more resilient than it has been during this pandemic.
1: You know, what's interesting is, in a strange way, it's kind of a circular problem, right? Looking back to the that last point you made about chronic disease and how many Americans suffer from it, and a lot of that is the lack of preventive health, right, And and the disparities in income and the inability to you know, eat well and exercise and prevent these diseases. So then they end up in the hospital and then you have this fee for service model where it's dependent on tests, right? You get paid per test. So then you're doing all of this stuff that builds up the billing system. And then when the patients stop coming, you know, the whole thing crashes. So it seems like a circular problem in many ways.
0: I think that's a really, really good way of looking at it. You know, I was talking to one of of the folks I interviewed in the past couple of months, uh, Sammy Inkinen, who's uh, CEO and founder of a company called Verta, which does diabetes care and does it virtually. So they get paid. Uh, this is one of those companies that has been doing well during this pandemic because they get paid for outcomes. They get paid for the number of patients that they care for and if they deliver on lowering the blood sugars. And so, you know, in some ways, in, in, a, in a large way, nothing has really changed for them. They are still taking care of patients because they were set up to do it virtually. Uh, they've been doing more uh, work, in fact, because patients have needed more during this uh, pandemic period. But they continue to take care of their patients and they continue to get paid. And so, you know, when I asked Sammy about that, you know, he really talked about this fact that he wanted to get paid this way. They could have done fee-for-service. In contracting, but he wanted to because he felt that it was aligned for everyone. For the payers who were paying, it was aligned. It was uh, aligned for the providers so that they know that as they did good care and patients got better, they got paid for that. And of course, it's aligned with you know what people, what patients want, right? Which is good outcomes. So, I think we have a payment system and a compensation system. That is just misaligned. And, you know, by the way, we've known that for years. It's just that this moment, again, this is the COVID capitalist. It really has uh, shown a light on a, a major, major misalignment, a major vulnerability in our healthcare system.
1: You've completed, uh, I guess, with more than 25 interviews in this uh, limited edition series to date. Tell us some of the people you've been talking to, how you selected them, and and what that, that process has been like in the conversations. Uh, one of the things that struck me in listening to these interviews was how familiar you were with many of them. You've been having conversations with them on all these issues for years and years and years. So it was like you know, sitting at the dinner table and having conversations with people. It was really interesting. You're very familiar with what's been working. what's not working. Tell us how you uh, picked the people you did for the series.
0: Yeah. People ask me that increasingly on the podcast, you know, how do you select folks? And there's this phrase by Gibson, the science fiction author. He says that the future, uh, or he wrote that the future is already here. It's just not spread evenly. And uh, so if you think about that and begin to understand that, in fact, there are people who are living in the future, you know, you could think of them as almost as representatives from the future. And these are the, you know, these are leaders, courageous, bold leaders who have really stepped out and stepped up. Uh, Entrepreneurs uh, fall into this category. CEOs can fall into this category. They're actually leaders at at all levels of organizations and doing work uh, in various ways that are really representatives from the future. And so that's who I'm looking for. I'm looking for folks who have really, again, stepped out of the norm and created a better future and a path to a better future. And largely, it's interesting how many commonalities these people have. I keep on saying to myself as I interview and I listen to these folks, of course you said that. You're one of them. I actually have said that out loud to people and they say, well, what are you talking about? I'm one of them. You're one of those representatives from the future. You're, you know, you're one of these bold, courageous leaders. One of the hallmarks is the sense of Empathy. Uh, that these folks have. It is just, it has taken over their careers. They see a problem in the world, again, not solving their own problems. So they're not solving the problem of their careers or how to make money because all of them have been in positions where they have a career, they're making money. That's that's not the problem they're trying to solve. And in fact, often this larger problem, they, this problem of empathy they're trying to solve, some big problem in the world takes over their career and redirects their career. Um, And they're often making less money for quite some time than they were in the past. And so these, these are the type of people I've been talking to for the last three, four years, or I've been interviewing formally. The truth is I started doing this back uh, probably about 10 years ago, started to call people up who were essentially, you know, reps from the future and ask them what they were doing, why they were doing it, how they were doing, how they were thinking about it. I actually started to formulate a sense of these people way before I even began working on the book. I have to tell you, and you know this from, you know, from doing your own podcasting, it is such a high to talk to these folks. I mean, it is more engaging and uh, more inspiring than watching a movie. It's just, it's, or, or even going to theater. It's just literally, they, they transform me during the conversations. I can feel their energy. I can feel their enthusiasm, their excitement, their sense of compassion. And you hear the commonality. For instance, I can't tell you How many times I heard the term whole person care in these interviews over the past couple of months over and over again. And these are not folks who are sitting there talking to each other or necessarily reading the same literature, but yet they've come to this sort of same sense of empathy that we have to move our system to a system that takes care of people, not just parts of people.
1: You know, it's funny when you talk about representatives from the future, uh, the image that comes to my mind is from the movie Men in Black. You know, you kind of see these dark suited guys with, and gals with uh, dark glasses, you know, kind of stepping out and and, and trying to make a point here. Uh, what were some of the, the common themes that emerged from these conversations, would you say?
0: Well, you know, it's funny just on the movie theme. Yeah, I think that's the Men in Black. I actually think of the Matrix. Yeah, and I think about them as seeing... You know, most people, if you remember that movie, classic, right? Uh, The first Matrix movie, and this guy was in the world, but essentially it was, you know, a reality that everyone had bought into. But the truth was he was woken up and transformed and actually saw the real reality and was able to be the hero and protagonist in this film. I see the people I talk to very, very much like that as seeing, seeing the world and seeing the reality in a different way and then working to make it better. I think to answer your question, again, a lot of the folks, you know, saw this. I mean, we're seeing the same glaring issues being just, you know, the light being shown on them. And, you know, I think one of the, in terms of moving to maybe, you know, talking about solutions, clearly, for instance, I I was talking to Tony Slonham, who's the CEO of Renown Health, and he's a physician and a CEO, and he's also got a PhD in public health. I interviewed him months ago and months and months ago, way, way before COVID, he was talking about the public health mindset and how healthcare needed to augment the medical mindset with a public health mindset. And that we needed really almost two parts. And he not only talked about it, he and his colleagues actually made it happen. So in their hospital system, they essentially have two systems. They have a hospital system that does all the Things that other hospital systems do, you know, with great excellence and and great providers and great surgeons and ICUs and emergency rooms, and so they have that. But he also created a different part of the organization, which was a health part or a public health part of the organization. And they do essentially population health, what we call population health or public health. They do prevention, proactive care, outreach. So they work with the elderly to keep them healthy and at home. They work with the youth to keep them away from drugs and alcohol, from cigarette smoking, uh, to keep them safe as they drive cars. They do genetic testing of populations, again, all voluntary, of course, but to help prevent diseases that could be picked up genetically. So he literally created within his own organization two parts of a healthcare system. And he was saying, Zev, this is what we should do. And of course, now comes COVID-19, and he says to me the same thing. It's not that it's changed. It's just again been accelerated and exposed. And he said, Zev, we need a public health mindset. We need a a system of health care in this country that has a robust public health system. Again, other countries have this. And Tony and I, Dr. Slanem and I were talking about this. I mean you look at New Zealand, okay, New Zealand has a fraction, I mean, if you look at the statistics, a fraction of the COVID-19 prevalence that we have, and the reason is they have a public health system in place, and all they had to do was put it, you know, they had to literally just turn on the switch, and they already had the steps in place, and it was just brilliant. You see the same thing in other countries, Taiwan, Taiwan's vice president, I just found this out, I didn't know this, I believe it's Dr. Chang, Taiwan's Vice President is actually an epidemiologist. He's a public health expert who's published as a scientist. He's published and a bona fide. In fact, he got his PhD from Johns Hopkins, I believe, in epidemiology and public health. And so, you know, that was one of the big, and it wasn't just Tony speaking about it. There were other people, everyone pretty much said the same thing, that we, we needed to have this place. To, again, the fact that we don't have contact tracing or at this point in time set up in the way it should be set up is just one indication you know again speaking to others the disparities of care the fact that you know we have to have food pharmacies that we've medicalized even the need for healthy food seems to some people absurd i mean this should just be part of who we are as a country we should be able to make this part of our health system our public health system that was one major theme god there were so many this is startling right in terms of of a statistic literally we went as a country uh, hospital systems, healthcare systems, from offering virtual care, maybe less than 5% of, of visits were virtual. Uh, now, there were some exceptions. I would say Kaiser Permanente was a an obvious exception to that. They were doing many more virtual visits, largely phone calls, but still, most of the country, less than 5%, uh, you know, examples like Intermountain and Providence, and literally overnight, overnight, within a couple of weeks, two, three weeks, we went from less than 5% virtual visits to over 90% of all encounters with patients were virtual. Talk about an accelerant. I mean, we literally accelerated in a matter of one or two months what it would have taken probably five to 10 years under normal circumstances. And all the Uh, counter arguments that, you know, doctors wouldn't do it. We don't know how to do it. We don't have the technology on and on the cost We're not paid for it. All that got erased. All that melted away in literally a month's time. We showed ourselves that we could do it. And we showed that it was actually, people loved it. Patients love it. Uh, I'm not saying everyone loves it. I'm not saying it should be hundred percent of the time, but people loved it. And the physician's uh, were able to do it. We put the technology in place. And CMS was able to put regulations in place to actually pay for it. And this is one of, again, one of the startling things and one of the silver linings was the, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid literally began to put out regulations, I mean, at a lightning pace that allowed for these things to happen so that you could get paid for virtual care. They reduced restrictions on who could do virtual care and, and how it was paid for and across state lines. So Those were some of the themes, there were others as well, but I'll I'll pause for a moment.
1: I think that, you know, uh, what you said about the smaller countries is really interesting. I, I saw an interesting article in the New York Times, I think, last week that said that, you know, while the U.S. looks like, as you, you know, to use your phrase, like the emperor has no clothes, you know, these smaller countries, Taiwan, Singapore, and New Zealand, the way they responded, you know, handing out my, uh, masks and all this stuff, that we have a lot that we can learn from these these smaller countries. And I think in terms of CMS, I was very encouraged to hear that because you think of U.S. government bodies as these gigantic, you know, battleships that can't be turned on a dime. And with CMS, it sounds like it forced itself to innovate and to turn on a dime. And I thought that was really an interesting positive, net positive that came out of this.
0: Thank you for saying that. I couldn't agree more with you. I mean talk about a silver lining, right? There have been a lot of silver linings from from this. And again, no one would want this pandemic. It's tragic in so many ways. I mean, the, the loss of life I just heard this morning uh, in this country, it looks like it's going to reach 100,000, I think by the end of May or June, loss of lives from the pandemic across the globe. It's way over 300,000 at this point, 320,000, something like that. Tragic, horrible. But the silver lining is that we showed in a moment of just ingenuity and innovation and people rolling up their sleeves and working together in a different way that we could change if we wanted to, all the arguments just melted away. And, you know, CMS, just, you know, a bureaucracy, you could see this uh, in one of the interviews I did with Jay Desai, who's the CEO and founder of patient paying. It's just, he's absolutely brilliant. And his company is, is fantastic. We actually do work with them. They're so helpful. He directed us to CMS.gov, and he said, just look at the regs they're putting out. And he worked at CMS. He knows what the bureaucracy is like. He said, they're putting out regs every few days. It's just an astounding rate. I mean, if the government could do that, right, if doctors and hospital systems across the country could literally overnight flip to 90% virtual encounters, I mean, we can do this if we want to. And for me, the pandemic is tragic. In and of itself, and we're going to be dealing with the aftershocks of it for months, if not years, to come. What it's done to the economy is really upsetting, and in some ways, maybe one of the biggest aftershocks, right? In terms of the the unemployment rate, I think the last I heard, it was fifteen percent. Again, nothing since the Great Depression has been like that. It's just so sad in so many ways, and it will have repercussions for people, including their health, right, and outcomes. But I think for me. The biggest, biggest tragedy would be if we didn't learn the lessons, if we didn't see what the COVID pandemic has exposed about our system, if we tried to uh, scurry back to what was normal pre-COVID, to me, that would be so upsetting. In fact, just even thinking about it, it gives me a pit in my stomach. It would be so upsetting to have gone through this, to have seen what the vulnerability and and fragility of our healthcare system has done, the havoc it's wreaked uh, across the country and across the globe, not to learn those lessons, not to remember the lessons, and just to go try to go back to what it was, uh, to some sort of normal, which you know, I don't think was ever normal in our healthcare system, that to me would be the biggest tragedy. And so, you know, you asked before about why I had the sense of urgency about doing these interviews now, documenting these lessons from experts uh, across the country and practitioners and leaders, and then sharing this with others, because I don't want us to forget this part, even as we focus on the pandemic, and everyone's focused on the pandemic right now, what do we do now? how do we stem this? How do we keep it at bay? How do we get a vaccine? All so important. And at the same time, I'm looking at the long game and I'm thinking, uh, oh my God, if we lose sight of what this has shown us, uh, shame on us. I don't think history would forgive us for that.
1: So, you know, you've been doing this now, you said for 10 years and the conversations have gotten more and more urgent and your knowledge has gotten deeper and deeper of the issues in the healthcare system and. What needs to happen? So if a magic wand were to be waved and a magic fairy came and said to Zev, you know, Zev, paint the picture you want of the healthcare system that you would want to see uh, that would resolve all these issues, and I'll make it happen with the wave of my wand, what would that be?
0: Well, uh, that's a great question. and. I'm not going to provide a comprehensive answer to that, but I'll say that there are, and again, coming from these interviews I've done over the past three years, plus the more intense ones over the past seven, eight weeks, I would say there are a few things. First of all, we need to adopt a public health mindset and have a more robust approach to public health and public health preparedness. This should be a place so that when something like this happens, we can flex that muscle. And essentially, that's a muscle that is atrophied. And in this country, and we need to start exercising it and putting it in place and organizing ourselves around that, number one. Number two, we need to address, uh, related to that, the disparities in care. And it's shameful in our country that we haven't in a more organized, uh, robust way. And so, you know, I will say there are organizations across the country that are doing this work and attempting to do it. I think we need to do it collectively. And so I would say that's the second thing that needs to be Reframed and put in place in a more systematic and systemic way. The third is that uh, we need a much much better approach to chronic disease management. I think again, the pandemic has illustrated to us how vulnerable chronic disease makes our society, and uh, there is no reason why we couldn't do a tenfold better job with chronic disease management. I think uh, we need a, a more robust approach using virtual care and remote patient monitoring, and and using uh, data signals and and artificial intelligence. And by the way, th- this is all already done. The representatives from the future that I've been interviewing are already doing this. they paved the path. We don't even have to make it up. It exists. We just have to adopt it and integrate it into our systems. So I would say a more robust and better way to do chronic disease management, I would say virtual care is a no-brainer. Um, that is something that we should not try to reverse, but actually hope to continue. It is effective. It's cost-effective. It's convenient provides better access to people. I think it actually leverages uh, providers much, much better because they'll be able to see more people and leverage their wisdom and experience and skill much better. And then finally, I think um, value-based payment, some sort of move to capitated payment is also a no-brainer. We've been slowly moving that direction. CMS has been nudging us in that direction. The payers have been nudging us in that direction. Employers have been nudging us in that direction. I don't think anyone, I don't think this is a political issue at all I think folks on both sides of the aisle, and we've seen that even from this administration, want to move to value-based payment to some sort of capitated model as well. I think we need to do that. And alongside that, and maybe connected to the disparities in care, we need to make sure that every American can access health care. And I don't mean being able to go to the emergency room after the fact, after they've had a heart attack or a stroke or having a a bypass surgery or catheterization after they've clogged an artery. I'm not talking about that kind of access. I'm talking about preventive proactive care, relationship centered care. I believe every American deserves that. And I believe that's what an advanced culture like ours can and should offer. And so, and again, I don't see that as a political issue. I see that as just a basic uh, human need and basic human right. And we can do that. And so uh, those are some of the lessons. And and if you asked what I would change, those are the top four or five or six.
1: I'm glad you uh, mentioned the P word as in politics. As you saw, COVID-19 became an intense political issue, pretty much in a heartbeat. And with the run-up to the November elections, you know, the presidential race, it's going to be, become even more politicized. Every aspect of it has been politicized already. And healthcare is one of the most divisive political issues of our time, which is probably why there hasn't been, or there's not been a lot of conversation, but there hasn't been a successful effort to try to, to make all of these changes. And I'm almost afraid to ask this question, because maybe I don't want to hear what I think I'll hear. Once the shock of COVID-19 wears off, is it possible that our healthcare system, our government, our politicians will go back to business as usual? And that nothing will really truly change at a permanent level, or has permanent change already happened?
0: Uh, Great, great question. First of all, I think we're going to be dealing with this pandemic for a while. I'm hoping, obviously, that uh, a vaccine will come out sooner. And it would be fantastic if we were able to make history in that way and create a vaccine in record time over the next year or so. That would be the first of its type in terms of that speed. But I'm hoping that we could do something along those lines. But even so, I think the after effects of the pandemic in terms of the the economic impact it's had I think we're going to be dealing with it so I don't think it's going to be I don't think we're going to be able to ignore it in the next you know 2 3 years I think to answer your question and this is maybe a call to action and a hope I think the answer to your question is really leadership right and so the question is do we as a society do we have leaders who are, and I mean not just individuals, but collectively able to get together because the solution in healthcare is gonna be a societal one. It's gonna take hospital systems and payers and device manufacturers and pharma and employers. It's gonna take courageous leaders coming together and saying, you know, enough is enough. We cannot continue this unsustainable system of healthcare. It, it has made us too vulnerable. And I, again, I, I hope that people see that lesson. It's really crippled the country. And it didn't have to. We could have been better prepared for it if we had been reframing healthcare beforehand. But this is the opportunity. This is the point in time where we could hopefully learn and then really and not only catalyze, but accelerate the reframing of healthcare. And so I think the question largely lies in our leadership. And I'm a realist, but I also am an optimist. And I believe that there are courageous leaders, visionary leaders, empathetic leaders, true leaders out there that uh, really want to take on this problem and do it together and work together in a different way. And I'm hopeful about it, because I think that's one of the lessons I've learned in this pandemic is that we actually can work together in a different way. We can put aside some differences if we want to and relate to each other differently. And I'm actually, I will say, I suspect you hear this in my voice, I'm, I am so energized at the current moment in time and enthusiastic. I really believe that the future not only can be, but will be better than the past.
1: As we wrap up this amazing conversation, Zev, I have a question. When people look back on this time, you know, in this period of our lives and what has happened to us and this healthcare system, what are they likely to say? What would you like them to say?
0: That we took one of the greatest crises in healthcare and really in in our American history, one of the greatest crises, and um, we really uh, reframed and reoriented our thinking and our actions, and uh, we turned it into one of the greatest moments of historic change, not only in healthcare, but in our society.
1: And as you think about every, every conversation you've had, do you have any closing thoughts, any stories that kind of stuck in your mind as you underwent this journey of exploration?
0: Uh, you know, I will say that I have dozens of stories. We could have spent the time just me sharing some of the stories I heard. You know, so many, so many stories, just people stepping up. And this will give gives me so much hope and encouragement. Uh, Dr. Iffy, who's a physician I, I can call a colleague at Atrium Health, uh, she began doing these uh, virtual group visits. I mean, she takes care of sickle cell patients, and she had never done this before. But because of the crisis, people were alone and sick and didn't, you know, were misinformed and, and socially isolated and depressed. And, and so she started doing these Zoom visits with 50 or 60 patients at a time. And uh, she had never done that before. And she started talking to them, and and they could ask her questions, and it's just amazing to actually watch this. And um, she's now done one a week for the last eight weeks. Things like that, that sort of innovation, it's just amazing. My colleague and friend, Wayne Sutil, who's an expert in resilience and has been focused a lot over the past 40 years on on this issue of resilience and burnout, particularly in healthcare and, and with providers, even he said to me that this has reframed his own thinking. And he's actually changed a lot of his perspectives. It's actually made him, and it's hard to imagine because he was so humanistic before, it's made him even more empathetic and more humane than he was before, which is hard to believe because he was so humane. Uh, You know, He's been such a humanistic person and so empathetic uh, as a psychologist and a coach. And yet it really, I heard it in his voice when I interviewed him, I heard it in what he had to say. There was a sense of, kindness, a level that uh, was almost transcendent. And that's what he was trying to share. That was his message that, you know, we have to learn to be more generous and more kind with ourselves. I've actually used some of the things he said in my own life now, personally, as well as professionally. But he said, uh, there's three things we need to do. He said all the literature, 40 years of being a scientist and a practitioner, boiled down to three things. He said, one is we need to think about our energy, the energy we give. Are we coming to conversations and relationships? Are we withdrawing energy? Or are we putting in energy? And he said, you know, you want to be putting in energy, right? As much as you can to whatever dialogue or relationship or meeting you're in. The second thing was attitude. And he said, you know, the attitude should be gratitude. And we should, wherever we come, wherever we show up, you wake up in the morning, shake it off. You know, you, you get out of your car at work, shake it off, And go in with gratitude. And I will say that one of the lessons I've learned more than any other is this notion of gratitude. And the third thing he said was relationship. He said, go into relationships, not again asking what it will do for you, but what you can do for it. And he gave me this great question, this very practical question. And he said, you know, ask your colleagues, ask your spouse, what can you do today to make their day easier and better? And I will say I tried it out with my spouse, and the smile I got back was. I mean, it was priceless. So anyway, again, dozens and dozens of these stories and shared learnings that, that I gained from these interviews.
1: Well, on that very beautiful note, I want to thank you for giving me the opportunity to kind of look behind the scenes of this very uh, transformative uh, journey that you've been on and to have a chance to learn from, from what you've learned. Thank you. And I'll turn it over to you.
0: First of all, I just want to thank you so much for taking the time to do this and and even more so for your integrity and your professionalism you know in preparing for this dialogue. I was just blown away by by you and and how you work and I have to say learned from it. I also want to thank all the guests who i've interviewed over the past few weeks uh, who really were gracious to be interviewed and also these interviews these people are busy and their schedules are full and often takes weeks sometimes months to get scheduled and people were scheduling in a matter of sometimes days and hours so i i can't name everyone but i just want to thank everyone there were people who i couldn't include in this series who i interviewed i just want to again thank them and i'm hoping to be able to post their interviews even after this limited series and finally, you know, before I, I sign off, I would like to say this is the final uh, episode of this season. I'm going to take a summer break and then kick off the fourth season of creating a new healthcare in early September. Uh, very excited about that. And then finally, as I do each and every episode, I'd like to conclude by thanking all of you out there who are doing the hard work each and every day of taking care of patients or supporting those who are taking care of patients in these times, especially I and we truly appreciate you for what you do and recognize how critically important your work is to individuals and families, communities, and our society at large. And uh, friends, colleagues, please take care of yourselves and please share this podcast series with your colleagues. Uh, This is Zev Neuwirth. Until next time, be safe and be well.